Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. During the 20th century, the changes wrought laid the foundation on which to build the 21st century. And if we use the past as an indication of things to come, it just may be we've drawn the wind out from under our dreams. And one wonders, as we should, where do we go from here? You're about to see the future, as only Dr. Suzuki knows how to describe it, when his voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. And so we conclude, as Dr. Suzuki draws from a lifetime devoted to saving the soul of our earth and talks about things to come. You've had the great opportunity to travel, particularly in your work with the uh, David Suzuki Foundation, to uh, very remote places on the planet and live with and share life with these people, which is an experience that... An unbelievable privilege. Yes, indeed. And they have so much to teach us, and I am totally committed to this concept that they have. They are just as rich and worthy in their knowledge as we are. Well, they have knowledge that will never be duplicated by scientists because it's thousands and thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. And so every time we lose a native culture somewhere in the world, we lose a priceless body of information. Now, I have to tell you, most of the communities I work with in, in Canada are unbelievably troubled. I mean, they're dysfunctional. They have epidemics of asthma, alcoholism, violence, sex abuse, suicide. I mean, they've had over 150 years of occupation by a dominant culture that has told them they're nothing but savages. They have nothing to teach us that what they have to do is quickly become as, uh, become like us and lose their knowledge and their language and their traditions. So no wonder they're completely screwed up. So I don't want to paint them as these you know, noble savages that are running around living in this wonderful state. They are dysfunctional they have unbelievable problems. Which is actually a very important point to make at this point, and that is the fact that these levels of change have happened in our lifetimes. Yes. Our lifetimes. Talking about the wonder that you experienced as a child, uh, the work that you've done through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and these changes are coming so quickly and creating such levels of dysfunction, even out into those remote areas, but then not even to mention what is happening in our own larger societies where we're unaware, truly, exactly. of, of, the, of the scope of this. And that's where, I, I guess, because unfortunately we, we only have so much time, we need to, to talk about the fact that one of the things that bothers me in some respects is the fact that we're, we're well, it's wonderful that we're beginning to acknowledge the fact that global warming is significant, and it is. And the, the consequences of that, they're going to be felt very soon. They're already being they felt. They are being felt. Mm-hmm. And, and yet... The, the difficulty is the fact that if we overemphasize global warming, we forget about the fact that the oceans are dying, that the life, that we've overfished the oceans. In other words, we need now to really expand this out and make sure that in the process of focusing on that one, we don't overlook the reality, which is so complex. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this, this is a question people are always asking me. Which is the most important environmental uh, issue? Is it global warming, toxic pollution, 
disappearance of uh, fishes in the oceans. Well, I mean, all of these things, yeah. we have no idea which is the one that's going to tip us over the edge. The the global warming is, you know, the, the effect on the atmosphere is so immense, They're, the repercussions are, are huge. I mean, the oceans are changing in large part because of global warming. Uh, you know, we have the largest sockeye salmon run in the world in the Fraser River. Uh, this year we had a, what was considered a large run of 15 million fish. But the great fear is that those fish won't make it to their spawning grounds because they're very temperature sensitive. And with global warming, the temperature of the Fraser River is getting higher and higher. So there, all of these things are interlinked. But I think the fundamental challenge is that the heart of the crisis is us, and it is the values that we cling to in our minds, our brains. We think that we are so smart and so important that we are in charge of everything and that the economy is the thing that must be kept growing at all costs and to hell with anything else. We are at the heart of the crisis, and yet we forget that we are biological creatures. And the absolute bottom line of the most important need we have is clean air, clean water, clean soil, clean energy, and biodiversity. If we don't have those things, we don't survive. So for God's sake, we've got to protect those things before anything else and then ask, how do we have an economy and a society that can live in balance with those things? And when you look at it that way, the overriding need that we have is to realize the urgency. I like to say it's the equivalent of a thousand Pearl Harbors going off at once. And that's the, the, the level of challenge. Now, I want to remind your listeners, I was a senior in college in 1957, just starting my last year, and when we were electrified to hear that the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik, nobody even knew there was a space program going. And in the months that followed, the United States failed over and over again. The rockets blew up on the launch pad again and again, or got off the ground and blew up. And meanwhile, the, the Soviets announced the first animal in space, Laika, dog, the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin, the first team of cosmonauts, the first woman. And we realized, oh my God, the Russians are really advanced in science, engineering, and mathematics. I didn't see the United States say, oh, they're way too advanced. It'll destroy our economy to try to, to catch up to them. No, there's no way we can do it. All I saw was, we got to win this one. we got to get to the moon first, and poured money into a space uh, race. And look at what happened. Not only did you get the first people, the only people, uh, to land on the moon, but all of the unexpected spin-offs of cell phones and instant global communication and CNN and all of the, the, the telecommunications, it all resulted as an unexpected side uh, result of the space race, and look at this year, 50 years after Sputnik. The United States won every single science Nobel Prize this year. That's because the United States said, we've got no choice, we've got to win this. And so it shocks me when I hear this administration saying, oh, well, we can't do anything about global warming, it'll destroy the economy. It's un-American to say that, for God's sake. The whole thing about the American enterprise is, American entrepreneurship and the willingness to get up and go to tackle problems after Pearl Harbor. The United States didn't roll over and say, the Japs have destroyed our Pacific fleet. You knew the, And the result was you not only won the war, the economy was blazing white hot at the end of that. 
I mean, over and over again, the United States has shown what it's made of, and it's shocking to see that this critical juncture at this point, with global warming very real and very terrifying, that Americans aren't responding in the way they always had to a major crisis. I think about these things all the time and uh, in a very serious way. This is, and you, you've already touched on this, but this to me is what needs to happen because I know you like solutions. You don't want people to just talk about what's wrong. You want people to talk about how to get to a better world. I think, and, and you've hit on this, the concept of globalization is what is wrong. Globalization came out of a concept that if we all were one world and we were all kind of sharing things and we had this similar economy and a similar sense of laws and things, that we, somehow we would get along very well, and that's a good concept. The trouble is the fact that it all is based on, as you say, economics, as yep. opposed to a different emphasis. And I think we have to really take a look because I, you know, this globalization process is driving things that are way beyond frightening when you start as you are well aware, talking about China coming online, what's happening in India and the developing world and the needs of all the people who are emerging who are going to want the goods, and it can't happen. It Ab cannot happen. Absolutely. And it's based on the fact that it, everyone's supposed to have a job and everybody's supposed to make money to buy all the stuff, and that's where the problem is. Something has to change. I don't have that answer right now, but I think we absolutely must, in the, in the, in the short-term future, begin to address this concept of economics versus globalization that deals with sustainability and human values and the survival of culture and, and nature itself. You've opened a window on five hours of discussion, and we don't have time for that. I, I understand. But you're absolutely right. On. Well, talk about that. We have about five minutes left. I, I'm going to let you just give us a summary of where, where you feel we need to go from now. Well, the, the problem, you know, Hazel Henderson, who's a futurist that uh, lives in Florida, says that conventional economics is a form of brain damage. And she's absolutely right. I, uh, I realized a few years ago that I've been going and giving lectures on, on the environment and spend most of the time talking about economics. I never took a course in economics. I just used common sense. So a few years ago, I said, uh, I better learn to use some of the terms so that I sound uh, impressive. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to take a course at, in uh, Economics 101. And because I was a professor, I could sign up for the course. And the first day I was going, uh, I was kind of excited. I hadn't had a course in a while. And my wife said, Suzuk, as I was leaving, she said, Suzuk, why don't you try not saying anything for a change. Just listen, and maybe you'll learn something. Okay, I said, I'll, I'll listen. Well, halfway through the first lecture, the professor said, and now here's a slide of the economy. And it was impressive, you know, uh, arrows going back and forth, raw material, extraction, process, manufacture, wholesale, retail. And the idea is if you diagram the entire economy, then you can put a, a disincentive here or an incentive down here and keep the economy going. You can manage the economy. And I swore to my wife, I couldn't help it, my arm went up all by itself, and I found myself saying, excuse me, Professor, where in that slide, in that diagram of the economy, where do you put the ozone layer? Where do you put the deep underground aquifers of fossil water? Where do you put topsoil or biodiversity? And you know what his answer was? The answer was, oh, those are externalities. In economics, an externality is something that isn't in the economy. So this is the yes. lunacy yeah, of conventional yeah, economics. Yeah, yeah. They don't even consider the earth, which is what keeps us alive, a part of the economy. It's an externality. So this is absolutely uh, a lunatic. Now, there are people that are trying to internalize what is an externality, asking how much 
would it cost, you know, how much does do all these services that nature is performing, like filtering our water, like taking carbon dioxide out of the air and putting oxygen back in it, none of those things register in our economy, right? So there are people that are trying to calculate how much is the value of those services. What would it cost us to do what nature is doing for us for nothing? And Bob Constanza, ecological economist at uh, University of Vermont, calculated a few years ago that nature does for us twice as much service as all of the collective annual GDPs of all the countries in the world. That is, if we had to do what nature is doing for us for nothing, it would cost us close to $40 trillion a year to duplicate that. And economists consider this an externality. It's not even included in the economy. And that's why Sir Nicholas Stern's study in Britain now about the cost of not doing anything with global warming is so important. What he's tried to do is say, wait a minute now, we've acted as if air is free and it has no consequences. Now what happens if we carry on with business as usual as the American corporate sector wants to do? It comes to more than the cost of World War One and World War Two put together. Trillions and trillions of dollars to deal with the consequences. Now, you want to know what's ludicrous about this economic system. Economists think that the most important thing in the world is us, human beings. We're so smart. We're so creative and productive and inventive that they build the economy on human creativity and productivity. And since there's no limit to our creativity, they think there's no limit to the economy. So economists actually think the economy can grow forever, which it cannot. Not only do they think it can grow forever, they think it must grow forever. That is, you just keep keep growing, and if we're not growing it, it, we're in deep trouble. And nobody ever asks, how much is enough? When you look at the level of wealth in this country and my country of Canada, it's obscene. It's absolutely obscene. And we still demand to have more and more and more, and all of that is coming out of the earth. Now, this, this simply uh, can't continue on, the demand for steady growth. You can't do that, and yet it's the basis on which all of our business enterprises are built. I have a, a friend who started a company, a clothing company in Canada called Roots, very successful company. He's come to many of my lectures, and he said, you know, David, I, I agree with most of what you say, but, you know, if I were to go to the bank and say, to the banker, Roots has now captured 10% of the clothing market in Canada. I am a multimillionaire, which he is, and I don't need any more money. But I, I would like to get a bank loan. I want to stay at 10% of the market, but I need a bank loan to improve my factory. He said, the banker will not give me a loan. If I don't submit a blueprint or a plan showing I'm going to keep growing steadily, then they consider you dying. Now, Steady growth forever is the creed of the cancer cell and of economists. And the end result, if we try to do that in both systems, is the same. It's death. So what kind of a crazy system do we have that demands and expects to have steady growth forever? When will Americans ever sit down and say, you know, we've got so much more of everything than when I was a kid. Am I that much happier? And I don't believe we are. Stuff is not what life is all about. Unfortunately, it's what captivates us. It's a drug. It's 
70% of the American economy. It's, David, that's, that's what I refer to as the nature industry. We need to start thinking of nature as the largest uh, industry in the world and, and treat it that way. David Suzuki, I thank you so much, first of all, for we could go on for hours, as you say, and I hope in the future we do. Okay, I, anytime. Give me a call. If people want to find out more about the David Suzuki Foundation, www.davidsuzuki.org. David, thank you so much. Good talking well, to you. Dr. Suzuki is now 70 years young and thinks about his life and describes it in wondrous spirit in his newly released book, David Suzuki, The Autobiography, published by Greystone Books and available in bookstores everywhere. I want to thank David Suzuki as he brings meaning to my life as a naturalist and educator, advocate, and friend of the earth. Thanks, David. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios until we meet again each Thursday or anytime on the archives when your voice of the earth calls out here on the Wild Side News.